Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of murder, medical malpractice, poisoning, mental health conditions, and suicide that may be disturbing. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. At one time or another, we've all felt overwhelmed and out of control. A missed flight, a botched interview, a relationship gone bad. Coping with the fundamental chaos of the world, most of us learn and grow from our experiences. We leave for the airport earlier, prepare for the next interview, bring our partner flowers. But some use a lack of control as an excuse to turn to darker vices. And Charles Cullen turned to the darkest vices of all. From a young age, Cullen was burdened with an overwhelming need to feel in control, along with a desperate desire to receive comfort and validation from women. Over his 16-year career as a nurse, Cullen dealt with his issues not by improving himself, but rather by taking the lives of vulnerable patients. This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. For decades, thousands of medical students have taken the Hippocratic Oath. It boils down to do no harm, but a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting. I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath, choosing to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate those who decided to kill. We'll explore the specifics of how they operate not just on their patients, but within their own minds, examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD. Hi everyone, I'm Dr. Kipper, and I'm looking forward to offering Alistair some medical insight into our final installment of the case of Nurse Charles Cullen, whose homicidal behaviors ended many lives. But there was a silver lining here, as Cullen's murders were the inspiration behind the creation of the Patient Safety Act of 2004 that continues to this day to actually save patients' lives. You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast on Spotify. Just open the app and type Medical Murders in the search bar. This is our final episode about Nurse Charles Cullen. Between 1987 and 2003, Cullen worked at 10 different medical centers across New Jersey and Pennsylvania. In that time, some suspect the lethal nurse claimed over 300 lives. Last time, we looked at the childhood traumas that led Charles Cullen to manipulate women for attention and sympathy. When this failed, Cullen turned to taking lives to feel in control. He spiked patients' IV bags with lethal amounts of insulin and injected others with equally dangerous doses of heart medication, a method that made him incredibly difficult to catch. Cullen jumped from job to job with ease and continued his murder spree all the while. In this episode, we'll uncover exactly how Cullen continually outsmarted hospital administrators and investigators for the better part of two decades. And we'll meet the close friend who ultimately brought him down. All this and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. 
Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. September 1st, 1993. The night shift. It had been three months since Charles Cullen returned to Warren Hospital from his stay at Greystone Psychiatric Hospital. He felt vindicated by his return to nursing, bulletproof even. And he had his eye on patient Helen Dean in more ways than one. Helen was 91 and recovering from a recent breast cancer surgery. If all went well, she'd check out in the morning. Her smooth recovery was partly thanks to her adult son, Larry Dean. Larry had not left his mother's bedside throughout her hospital stay. He'd grown familiar with the doctors and nurses who filtered in and out of the door, exchanging pleasantries and getting positive updates on his mother's health. That night, when an unfamiliar male nurse in all-white scrubs entered the room, Larry thought it was strange. All the other nurses he'd seen at Warren Hospital wore blue. The nurse, Charles Cullen, asked Larry to leave without making eye contact. Larry shrugged off his suspicions. He had long since learned to trust the professionals in charge of his mother's care. He went to the cafeteria to grab a cup of coffee. This left Charles Cullen alone with Helen Dean. He administered an injection directly into Helen's leg and then left the room. At this point, Cullen assumed he would be caught. He'd foregone his usual method of randomly injecting IV bags targeting a specific patient. This attack was more direct. He'd touched Helen. He'd chosen her. For Cullen, there was something infuriating about how Helen's son spent all his time in her room, like he owned the place. Charles Cullen needed to prove he was the one in control. Control taken, Cullen smugly walked to his next patient. Meanwhile, Larry Dean returned to find his mother alone and irate. He stuck me, she told him, pointing to a spot in her thigh. Larry took out his Swiss Army knife magnifying lens, and just as his mother said he would, he found a pinprick. Larry called his mother's doctor, who said the prick was probably a bug bite. But by the next day, 
Larry's greatest fears had come true. In the morning light, Helen Dean almost looked like a different person. She was pale, sweating, and exhausted. Larry stood helplessly by her side as emergency medical staff scrambled to stabilize her, but nothing seemed to work. Within hours, Helen Dean's heart stopped and doctors were unable to revive her. What Helen's doctors couldn't have known was that she had just become one of the first known victims of Charles Cullen's new method of murder, an overdose of a drug called digoxin. We know that Cullen had previously killed by injecting large amounts of insulin into IV bags. For non-diabetic patients, insulin administration can cause coma and death from hypoglycemic shock, sometimes called insulin shock, where the brain shuts down from a lack of available glucose. It might also induce cardiac arrest in vulnerable patients because it can dangerously increase heart rate and blood pressure at improper doses. Cullen's new pharmacological weapon of choice, digoxin, is a medication that's most commonly used to regulate abnormal heart rhythms. It works by slowing our heart rate, by altering the electrolytes within the heart cells, and also helps fill the ventricles with blood. However, like most other drugs, incorrect prescribing or high dosing can be tantamount to poisoning. Because it alters the heart's rhythm, digoxin can cause deadly cardiac events like arrest and arrhythmia in those patients who don't have heart disease. Because Helen hadn't been prescribed digoxin, her doctors would have had a hard time identifying it as the cause of her sudden crash. The confusing nature of his mother's death spurred Larry's suspicion. He demanded an autopsy. Then he spoke to the other nurses he'd gotten to know at Warren Hospital, describing the oddly dressed nurse who convinced him to leave his mother's side. The nurses identified the man as Charles Cullen. Yet despite Larry's evidence that Charles Cullen was the one responsible, one detail allowed Cullen to escape the law yet again. When Helen Dean's autopsy was scheduled, the regular medical examiner was out of town, so another doctor performed the autopsy. Though the doctor tested Helen's blood and tissue samples for nearly 100 other chemicals, he made a single, astounding oversight. He forgot to test for digoxin. Post-mortem toxicology exams are part of the autopsy process, and they're meant to determine the types of drugs that were in a person's system when they died. Basic immunoassay tests screen for major drug families like opiates, benzos, and barbiturates, and are conducted if medication is thought to be a cause of death. The metabolites of any prescribed drugs are also analyzed to ensure their administration and dosing were managed correctly. When the initial study is followed by a more comprehensive screening, the investigation throws a wider net to search for other drugs or substances. Digoxin belongs to a very specific class of medications, known as cardiac glycosides, and this kind of drug wouldn't have been tested for unless Helen had corresponding prescriptions in her hospital chart or her family made a specific request. Hence, this wasn't really the doctor forgetting to test for digoxin. It was more about a lack of information. With no proof to the contrary, Helen Dean's death was determined to be of natural causes. The Warren Hospital investigation ended after a few months, 
Charles Cullen was on paid leave during the investigation, but rather than return to a job where he was the target of increased scrutiny, Cullen again chose to move on to a new hospital with another clean slate. He'd worked at Warren Hospital for a little more than a year, but quick job changes would become a pattern for him. From 1994 to 2000, Charles Cullen worked at five different hospitals and medical centers across New Jersey and Pennsylvania. During much of that time, he appeared to be a competent nurse. He didn't have friends, but he could be friendly when he wanted to. He even dated, showering his new girlfriends with affection as he had his ex-wife. But during all of this, Cullen continued to give patients lethal doses of medications. Throughout this period, it seems he primarily relied on digoxin. Cullen's list of victims grew every week. Leroy Sin, Earl Young, Catherine Dext, Frank Matsako, Jesse Eichlin, Ottomar Schramm, Matthew Matern, and each confirmed victim was accompanied by an unknown number of attempted or suspected murders. Whenever Charles Cullen began to receive unwanted attention or suspicion, he would simply move on to another facility. He knew he could count on the nursing shortage and vague references from past employers to secure his next job. Even if an investigation was launched, it happened the same way every time. The hospital would take their time to meticulously study each case before taking even the mildest disciplinary action. The police, if they were ever called, were often quickly overwhelmed by the complicated medical jargon. Thus, Charles Cullen managed to avoid any major consequences for nearly a decade. That is, until his time at St. Luke's Hospital in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. St. Luke's was a prestigious hospital, ranked by US News and World Report as one of the top medical facilities in the nation. When Cullen was hired in June 2000, he enjoyed his status as a nurse in the hospital's highly respected coronary care unit. But by his 40th birthday, nearly two years later, the novelty was gone, and Cullen was tired of St. Luke's. His worsened attitude was partly due to his co-workers. The medical field had changed in the last decade, and Cullen was no longer the only male nurse. These new male nurses teased him and started rumors about him, just like the men in the Navy. But he also took issue with the hospital itself. St. Luke's seemed, in Cullen's eyes, to be overly concerned with their national ranking. They were strict and exacting. Stuck up, if you asked him. He decided to take them down a peg. So he started throwing out supplies. The goal was to gum up the works, to cost the hospital money, and also time restocking and organizing. But of course, wasting money wasn't Cullen's only motive for stealing hospital supplies. In June of 2002, St. Luke's nurse Kim Wolf entered the hospital supply closet to grab some equipment. She tossed a used syringe into a disposal container, the sharps box, as they called it. Usually, she would hear a little clink as the needle hit the bottom of the container. But on this particular day, she didn't hear a clink. Curious, Wolf peeked through the hole of the locked box. Inside, 
she saw something that shocked her. The container was almost overflowing with boxes of drugs. Wolf called for a veteran nurse, and they opened the sharps box to find piles of unused drugs and supplies. But these weren't the types of addictive drugs one would expect to be stolen, such as Oxycontin or morphine. The items in the sharps box were random and unremarkable. It didn't make any sense. Wolf wondered, why would anyone do this? Kim Wolf got her answer halfway through emptying the sharps box. Nestled among the full bottles of mostly harmless medical supplies was an empty bottle. And not just any bottle. This was vecuronium bromide. And someone had tried to hide it. It's not surprising that Cullen hid the empty bottle, Alistair. Vecuronium bromide, sometimes referred to as VET by hospital staff, is a powerful and potentially dangerous muscle relaxant. It's commonly used in conjunction with anesthesia to help relax muscles during a surgery, and it's often given to facilitate endotracheal intubation. VEC is a neuromuscular blocking agent, which means it stops nerves from communicating with the body's muscular systems, including those involved in respiratory and cardiac function. If someone were to be dosed with an overly hefty amount of VEC, they could essentially become paralyzed to the point that their heart and lung muscles completely stop, causing death, barring speedy medical attention. Because of how lethal it can be, vecuronium bromide is therefore kept in highly monitored areas in hospitals. Finding empty bottles of it would absolutely be cause for alarm. And the nurses were alarmed. The empty, hidden VEC bottles put the hospital on high alert. Kim Wolf and a few other nurses began to watch the storage room. When she spotted Charles Cullen spending a little too much time inside, she went in to check things out. Once again, she found the sharps box full of discarded medicine. The hospital began an internal investigation. They were reasonably certain that Charles Cullen was the one throwing away unused medication, but they couldn't figure out where the missing VEC went. Rather than wait out another fruitless round of interrogation, Cullen simply resigned. He saw the many unsuccessful investigations against him as a type of exoneration. By failing to catch the killer in their midst, despite all the evidence they seemed to have, Cullen believed the hospitals were yet again deciding who lived and who died just like they had his mother. He moved on with an unmarked conscience. But his next job at Sacred Heart Hospital in Allentown, Pennsylvania, was cut short. One of the nurses at the hospital had worked with Cullen before. She told her co-workers about the suspicious deaths she'd witnessed, and the nurses petitioned the administration to fire Cullen, threatening to walk out en masse. Cullen was let go after only two weeks on the job. By July 2002, Charles Cullen had burned most of his bridges in the Pennsylvania nursing community. Then, one day, a sign came to him in the form of a glossy flyer in his mailbox. It was a recruitment mailer for Somerset Medical Center in New Jersey. The full-color ad featured smiling people dressed in hospital scrubs. Join the team, it told him. So he did. Coming up, 
Charles Cullen finds something new at Somerset Medical. A friend. Pinocchio. Sleeping Beauty. The Little Mermaid. They're all iconic Disney movies. But did you know the original versions of these stories did not end with a happily ever after? Hi, I'm Alastair from Parcast, and I'm hosting a new Spotify original called Once Upon a Time. For nine weeks, we're commemorating the 120th anniversary of original Imagineer Walt Disney's birth by lifting the curtain and comparing some of your favorite Disney stories with their earliest tellings. Once Upon a Time will chart Disney's career triumphs, as well as the crushing defeats that almost ruined it all. We'll also look at what it took to bring these stories to life and why Disney's adapted versions became so memorable across generations. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Once Upon a Time. Listen free and exclusively on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. Charles Cullen applied for work at Somerset Medical Center on August 15, 2002. On his application, Cullen claimed he left his recent job at St. Luke's Hospital because he needed a change. St. Luke's confirmed his dates of employment, and he was offered a full-time job at Somerset in September. Cullen assumed it would be exactly like the other hospitals he'd worked at, but he was wrong in one regard. His miscalculation came in the form of 36-year-old nurse Amy Lochran. By September 2002, Amy had been working at Somerset Medical for a short time. She didn't need new friends, but Amy had always been drawn to shy people. It was the same impulse that led her to become a nurse, the desire to protect the vulnerable, to help those who couldn't help themselves. Maybe that's why she first noticed her new co-worker, a quiet, hunched little man who avoided her eyes and wore Mr. Rogers' cardigans despite being only 42. Amy couldn't have been more different. At nearly six feet tall, with highlighted blonde hair and a memorable figure, she was the life of the party. She was honest, spoke her mind, and dealt with the tough, unavoidable parts of her job with a wry sense of humor. That humor was how she first bonded with Charles Cullen. No one could make the night shift fun like Cullen, or Charlie, as Amy called him. Amy enjoyed spending the time between patients laughing and gossiping. She would tease him about the hours that he spent logging patient notes on the hospital's record-keeping system, joking that he was writing a novel. And Cullen would entertain her with stories from his life, like his time in the Navy or fights with his latest girlfriend. Cullen started to feel happy again. Amy, in turn, began to share her own stories with her new friend and her secrets. 
One night in mid-October, when both Amy and Cullen were on the night shift, Amy found herself suddenly gasping for air. She leaned against the wall, breathing heavily, the room spinning around her. Luckily, her good friend Charles Cullen noticed her distress. He led her into an empty room and sat her down. When she finally caught her breath, the first thing out of her mouth was a confession. Amy Lockerin said she had a heart condition known as atrial fibrillation. Atrial fibrillation is a condition where the heart's upper and lower chambers, the atria and ventricles, don't beat in rhythm with one another. This usually results in a very rapid pulse, and it also disturbs blood flow within the heart, causing it to pool in the atria, potentiating the formation of deadly clots. In addition to stroke, AFib can cause cardiac arrest, induce and worsen heart failure, and lead to a host of other coronary problems. It's even believed that AFib can cause cognitive impairment and dementia over time because it can limit blood flow to the brain. Amy diagnosed herself with atrial fibrillation, brought about by a sick sinus syndrome, which happens when the heart's built-in pacemaker, or sinus node, is unable to produce an adequate pulse to meet the body's demands. It may, for example, cause someone to pass out during exercise because their heart suddenly can't pump blood fast enough to their brain. It's likely that Amy had some underlying condition or genetic predisposition given her age. Atrial fibrillation definitely could have made it very hard for her to perform her nursing duties at times. Possibly because she was worried her condition would be seen as a problem, Amy kept her self-diagnosis secret from her employers. She didn't want anyone questioning her ability to do her job. Besides, it seemed almost funny to Amy, a nurse at one of the nation's top cardiac units secretly dying of heart complications. But Cullen didn't laugh. Instead, he left the room and returned with a small green pill. It was diltiazem, a drug used to treat high blood pressure and certain heart rhythm disorders. Cullen ordered her to take the pill and rest for the remainder of her shift. He would look after her patients. But Amy's confession had rattled Cullen more than he cared to admit. In all his years of nursing, no one had befriended him like Amy. No one had cared for him and looked out for him. It was one of the first times since his mother used to coddle him as a boy that Cullen felt seen, loved even. And now, as a heart complication threatened to take it all away, he could feel his control slipping. That same old panic settled in, the feeling that the world was spinning out of control. And he only knew one way to feel in control again. At first, no one at Somerset noticed. There was only the slow uptick of early morning codes. Eleanor Stucker in January, Joyce Mangini and Giacomino Toto on Cullen's birthday in February, a present to himself. John Shaniger in March, Dorothea Hoagland in April, Melvin Simcoe and Michael Strenko in May. By June, Cullen's killing spree caused a ripple effect through Somerset. The hospital implemented a new insulin protocol, which required nurses to fill out an insulin adjustment form rather than simply grab it from the little fridge in the nursing unit. Cullen adapted 
by falling back on digoxin. But despite his careful efforts, Charles Cullen's murderous habits were about to catch up with him. Reverend Florian J. Goll was admitted to Somerset in June 2003. He suffered from a three-digit fever and swollen lymph nodes that suggested a bacterial infection, likely pneumonia. He'd stay at the hospital, monitored by a number of nurses, including Charles Cullen. Cullen studied the reverend, recalling his miserable childhood in Catholic school. The association alone was enough to make Cullen want to send the Reverend Gall into God's hands. But it wouldn't be easy. The Reverend had a sister named Lucille Gall. Much like Larry Dean's constant presence around his mother years earlier, Lucille never left her ailing brother's side. She was also a former senior nurse at a nearby hospital, so the Somerset staff allowed her to stay at her brother's bedside after visiting hours, a professional courtesy. Cullen hated how Lucille acted as though she were in charge, questioning his every move like he was a child. But even she couldn't stay at the hospital all night. And when she left, Cullen finally had the privacy he wanted. Reverend Gall coded at 9.32 a.m. on June 28, 2003. He was dead by 10.10 a.m. The Reverend's blood work showed extremely high digoxin levels, raising red flags. He was the second patient to suffer a digoxin overdose in June. A woman named Jin Kyung Han had nearly died of it two weeks earlier. Somerset Medical Center launched an internal investigation, but perhaps out of fear of a lawsuit, they seemed to drag their feet, as other hospitals had done in the past. While the investigation carried on, suspicion hovered around Charles Cullen. But he wasn't worried. He'd gotten away with murder so many times before. The complicated medical history records and printouts from the hospital's computerized drug dispenser, known as Pixis, were like a foreign language to investigators. The Pixis system is a computerized drug dispensing machine that stores patient information and tracks drug orders and who places them. These automated cabinets provide an efficient way for hospitals to store drugs, and they eliminate a lot of grunt work, like manually accounting for the unused medications and subsequently connecting with hospital pharmacies for restocking. This is a nice luxury because it frees healthcare employees to focus on more important tasks and reduces a hospital's overhead expenses. Most importantly, though, Pixis machines offer safety. They're designed to prohibit errors in administering medications, warn staff about potential drug interactions, and even alert them about a patient's known allergy to a specific medicine. Hospitals typically review Pixis printouts weekly, and because of how detailed and comprehensive they are, a certain level of training is required to understand all of their nuanced data. Unable to identify evidence that may have been right in front of them, investigators couldn't immediately pin the digoxin deaths on Cullen. However, given the level of suspicion surrounding Cullen in the first place, Somerset decided to fire him. They cited inaccurate past employment dates on his initial job application. Knowing this would appear trivial on his next job application, Cullen shrugged and moved on, like always. He would miss working with Amy, though. 
he commiserated with her over his firing, blaming it once again on unfair persecution. He took comfort in Amy's reassurances that he'd be back on his feet in no time. But there was one thing Cullen didn't anticipate. Detective Baldwin interrogating his friend, Amy Lochran. In November 2003, Amy joined the detective in a conference room. She'd been crushed when Cullen was fired from Somerset in October. In her eyes, Cullen was an exceptional nurse. Somerset had even put him on a recruitment flyer which read, Charles appreciates the technology and more. Amy told Baldwin all of this. She said she thought the investigation was ridiculous. Baldwin's reaction was unexpected. He was used to nurses clamming up when he questioned them, so he found Amy's candid nature refreshing. In fact, he needed someone willing to be honest, and who could make sense of all the medical jargon. On a whim, Baldwin slid Amy a piece of paper. It was one of Cullen's Pixis printouts, the one from the night Reverend Gall died. Baldwin studied Amy's face as she read the printout. As Amy read, her heart sank. To a police officer, Cullen's Pixis report might not have looked like much, but to a professional nurse, it was extremely suspicious. Amy was not yet sure what it all meant, but she did know one thing. The person she considered a friend was a criminal. Later, the detective showed her a handful of other Pixis sheets with Cullen's name on them. Amy's concern wasn't due to one drug order in particular, it was the sheer number of them. The list of medications Cullen had taken out was ten times longer than anything she'd ever required. He was ordering drugs his patients couldn't possibly need. And even more strange, even though he had ordered digoxin, the drug that killed Reverend Gall, he had cancelled the order within minutes of placing it. Amy reassessed Cullen's eccentricities, the traits she just thought made him who he was, like his secrecy about his patients or his preternatural skill at wrapping up dead bodies. Suddenly, it clicked. Even though it signaled fresh hope for the investigation, Amy's realization was the most devastating moment of her life. She looked up at the detective and said the words that would change everything. Tell me what you want to know. Coming up, Amy helps Detective Baldwin take down her old friend. Now, back to the story. By late November 2003, Detective Danny Baldwin had been investigating Somerset's mysterious deaths for nearly two months. Like the hospital investigations before him, he'd struggled to find hard evidence. Until he met Amy Lochran. Once Amy saw Charles Cullen's incriminating Pixis drug dispenser readouts, she joined Baldwin's investigation as a confidential informant. Detective Baldwin caught her up on the investigation so far. He told Amy that the hospital was resistant to his efforts. They were required by law to notify the police, but they certainly weren't helpful with the investigation. The only way Baldwin had known to look into Charles Cullen at all was due to a single mention of him in the five-page memo Somerset had handed over. 
the sum total of paperwork from the hospital's internal investigation. Amy's help making sense of the medical records was only a start. While they knew that Cullen ordered large amounts of digoxin from the Pixis machine for months, the order dates didn't match all the dates of known patient deaths. Not to mention, many of his orders had been cancelled. Amy didn't understand it. So she stayed on at Somerset Medical while secretly helping the police gather more evidence against Cullen. This meant she was working double duty. And it started to take a toll. Near the end of an exhausting shift, she entered the wrong drug order into the Pixis. She quickly cancelled the order, but was surprised when the drawer still popped open, the drug rattling in the plastic drawer. Amy looked at the screen in shock. There it was, order cancelled. Yet she could still reach out and grab the medication. Apparently, Cullen's cancelled orders hadn't been so cancelled after all. Detective Baldwin was impressed when Amy revealed her discovery, but while it was a good theory, they couldn't retroactively prove that Cullen had taken the cancelled orders from the machine. The Pixis data wasn't enough. They needed something more. Amy racked her brain. She wondered about the Cerner, the patient record system she used to joke Cullen was writing a novel on. She asked Baldwin if he had found anything useful there. Baldwin blinked at her. What's a Cerner? The hospital had neglected to turn over Cullen's Cerner records, so Amy printed them out herself. She'd seen Cullen spend hours at the mobile Cerner unit typing away. She'd always assumed he was just a diligent record keeper, another reason she thought he was a good nurse. But looking at his records now, Amy was deeply confused. Cullen's patient records were the worst she'd ever seen. They were full of misspelled words and half-written observations. They certainly weren't taking him more than a few minutes to write. She wondered, what was he doing on the machine? Amy soon found her answer. Along with keeping patient records, the Cerner system also kept a browsing history, a time-stamped record of every file an employee looked at. When Amy searched Cullen's browsing history, what she saw chilled her. Cullen had spent hours every night looking at patient files. But the odd part was that they weren't even his patients. Looking through his browsing history, Amy spotted a few familiar names, including Reverend Florian Gall. She gasped. Charles Cullen wasn't taking diligent notes or even writing a novel on the Cerner system. He was choosing his next victim. Systems like Cerner originated in the 1960s and 70s, but came into prominence in the late 90s as an efficient way to input patient notes, look up their medical histories, and access test results. I currently use a newer generation of this system called EPIC, which is one of many evolving and updated electronic record-keeping systems. 
It would definitely be strange for a nurse or any other practitioner to access health records for someone who wasn't their patient. If a doctor or nurse wasn't an authorized member of a patient's care team, they'd be committing a crime by accessing these private records. Without a patient's consent, this would be highly illegal and inappropriate behavior and could likely result in the suspension or revocation of their professional license. Baldwin was now armed with a cross-reference of Cerner data, the most damning evidence yet, but it still wasn't enough. Baldwin needed one more thing from Amy, something risky. He needed her to speak to Charles Cullen. Amy was apprehensive. She hadn't seen Cullen in person since he was fired, but with Cullen already on the hunt for a new job, time was running out. So Amy invited Cullen to have lunch with her. They met on a chilly December day in 2003. Amy greeted Cullen warmly, trying to forget the wire hidden beneath her shirt, and Detective Baldwin listening in his car outside. They ordered Southwestern spring rolls and shared the plate. Then, it was just a matter of waiting for the over-attentive waiter to leave them alone so that Amy could prod for information. It wasn't hard to steer the conversation to the investigation. The news had leaked that very day that a former Somerset Medical Center nurse was under investigation for murder. Cullen told Amy that he'd heard his own name on the radio during the car ride over. They'd called him the Angel of Death. Cullen didn't seem upset or alarmed at the media attention. He almost seemed to like it. He'd even brought a hard copy of the New York Times with him to the restaurant, pointing excitedly at the mention of a male nurse being investigated for murder. Amy tried not to be frightened. She tried to pretend she was just talking to her friend, Charlie. But all of Cullen's old stories about being targeted by past employers and stalking his ex-girlfriends rattled in her brain. Baldwin had identified Reverend Gore's death as the clearest cut case due to the massive amounts of digoxin found in his system when he died. So Amy's job was to get Cullen to admit, on tape, that he had intentionally killed Reverend Gore back in June. Amy steeled herself for the task. She tried to pretend it was just another gossip session between nurses on the night shift. She asked Cullen what he remembered from the case. He shrugged and said he didn't remember much. Amy switched up her strategy. She tried flattering Cullen, something she knew to be effective. She told him he was an excellent nurse, that she cared about him, that she just wanted to know what happened. But in the end, she wasn't getting anywhere. She had to be more direct. She looked Charles Cullen in the eye and told him, that she knew. Amy watched Cullen's eyes go glassy and wide. His skin turned pale and waxen. It was as if the darkness she used to catch glimpses of took over his whole body. And suddenly, he wasn't her friend Charlie anymore. He spoke in a low, animal voice. Five words uttered, one at a time. Let me go down fighting. Cullen left the restaurant. When Amy finally emerged, 
she practically collapsed into Detective Baldwin's arms. She told him through tears how he had changed, how Cullen had transformed into something terrifying, a monster, a murderer. Police arrested Cullen on his drive home and took him into the station for questioning. They interrogated him for hours, but they couldn't get him to break. They needed a real confession. They needed Amy Lochran one last time. The next day, Amy joined Cullen in the interrogation room. She sat down next to him, draped her cardigan over his shoulders, and held his hand, just like his mother used to. Amy told Cullen that he should confess that it would be good for his soul. Then, she told him, it could exculpate Amy herself. Everyone knew Amy was Cullen's friend. She had worked closely with him, often assisting each other with their patients. Now, Amy told him, the police were trying to frame her as an accomplice, and Cullen was the only one who could set the record straight. Cullen looked at Amy, his closest friend, still by his side after all she knew. For once, someone was looking to him for comfort and protection. She wasn't just asking him to confess, she was asking him to save her. Cullen took a deep breath and started to talk. He talked for seven hours stopping only for coffee and bathroom breaks. He told his whole story, everything he remembered at least. He mentioned Reverend Gall, as well as patients from other hospitals, including some from years prior. He couldn't remember their names, but he did remember their ailments and how they died. Detective Baldwin had hoped for a single murder confession. By the end, Charles Cullen had given them 40. In April 2004, Charles Cullen pleaded guilty to killing 13 patients and attempting to kill two others. In May, he pleaded guilty to three more murders. Finally, in November, he added six more murders and three attempts. In March 2006, Charles Cullen was sentenced to multiple life sentences to be served consecutively. As part of his plea deal, Cullen agreed to cooperate with the police to identify his past victims if the court did not seek the death penalty for his crimes. Since the arrest and the subsequent media frenzy, steps have been taken across the country to prevent someone like Charles Cullen from getting away with murder. In 2004, New Jersey passed the Patient Safety Act, as well as an Enhancement Act that makes it mandatory for hospitals to report suspicious events to the Department of Health. In addition, at least 35 other states have also passed laws intended to protect employers from being sued for passing along truthful but potentially damaging information about past employees. That's true, Alistair, and the Cullen case also led Pixis Systems to fix the glitches in their drug dispensers that allowed Cullen to obtain deadly medication without oversight. Charles Cullen's story is so fascinating because he evaded consequences for so long, and it's crazy to think that this is a relatively contemporary tale. 
It's a very interesting example of how a deranged person was able to take advantage of a flawed institutional system. And I think this is really the crux of how medical murderers are able to operate and endure. Luckily, despite the death and mayhem along the way, these cases do ultimately change policy and force us to correct systemic bungles. I think it's safe to say that copycat killers will continually have a much harder time relying on hospital blind spots. The effects of Charles Cullen's evil spree are immeasurable. Much of the pain he caused can't be undone. Amy Loughran, for one, quit nursing shortly after Cullen's arrest. And Charles Cullen, a man defined by his desperate desire for control, is currently serving his life sentences in the New Jersey State Prison in Trenton. He is ineligible for parole until the year 2403. This guarantees he'll never be able to take control over others again. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders, and thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thanks very much, Alistair. For more information on Charles Cullen, among the many sources we used, we found The Good Nurse, a true story of medicine, madness, and murder by Charles Graeber, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Nick Johnson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Danny Messerschmidt, with writing assistance by Sarah Batchelor and Maggie Admire, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Chelsea Wood. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden. Walt Disney had a gift for storytelling that resonated with audiences. From a puppet who wanted to become a real boy, to a mermaid who yearned to be part of the human world, Disney has developed relatable and unforgettable characters. Hi, it's Alastair from Parcast. Join me for Once Upon a Time, a special collection of Parcast episodes celebrating the original Imagineer himself, as well as the origins of Disney's most iconic characters and stories. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Once Upon a Time, and catch new episodes Mondays, free and only on Spotify. <laughs>